Hey, this is Taylor Jones. We own 24 short-term rentals with nine more under contract in eight markets. And this is the Next Generation Podcast. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. Taylor, welcome to the show, man. I have been meaning to get you on here for months now. Last time we chatted was five months ago and it's been really cool to watch your growth ever since because I think when we chatted before, maybe you had like three or four STRs, short-term rentals, and now you are fat and heavy. You've got, what, 24 now, I think you just said, and you've got nine more under contract? Yeah, no, we're continuing to grow this huge short-term rental portfolio, and it's been pretty exciting with the journey and how fresh and new it is, but at the same time, having the tremendous upside that comes with, you know, this new asset class that is less established than some of the traditional multifamily storage, um, you know, office retail, et cetera. When did you guys actually make the decision to go kind of all in on short-term rental properties? So the portfolio itself was announced on Halloween. Um, you know, me personally, I started buying short-term rentals, you know, for myself last year. So a little over a year ago in early 2021, and kind of the idea was came about our, our two co-founders um, actually both come from tech, one's ex-Facebook, one's ex-Apple. And so we kind of integrate some technology into the real estate world of short-term rentals um, by having our technology, our team, and that's kind of allowed us to build where we're at. So yeah, it's still very young, um, you know, probably only seven, eight months now, but it's been an awesome journey with everything we've been able to acquire and build out and grow. Oh, yeah, man. Um, I, I definitely like for a lot of this episode, I think I just want to talk about like the fundamentals and like the investment thesis behind it, because like even like the playbook, right? We've got one of our buddies from college. His, uh, his name's Mike, and he's doing this right now over in Colorado. He's got two and one of them's cleaning up, you know, 700 bucks a night kind of rental uh, territory. And when you see the work he does, like it's a lot of a sprints, you're remodeling stuff. Um, and, and then after that, like it's the management seems doable. Like it seems like this is the kind of thing that like not many big players are in yet that if you find the right opportunities and you find the right market, you can make a lot of money on over the next couple of years. So maybe I think probably the best place to start is like almost like super novice. Like let's take things back to like the person who's like, all right, what the hell is a short-term rental? Uh, and, and cause I think that everyone listening to this has stayed probably in an Airbnb or a Verbo or like something like that at this point to the point where like they will, they recognize what it is, but like, do you want to maybe give a little bit of a background in terms of like, what the asset class is and how it kind of came up over the last couple of years to be a little bit more like, uh, like uh, investor friendly investor opportunities. Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, people have technically been staying in short-term rentals, you know, since the seventies or eighties, you know, grandma had her cottage, she would rent it out. So, you know, the, I think what's new about the asset class is the direct booking platforms that, you know, are Airbnb, VRBO, and that's just really allowed it to open up to the marketplace. It's also allowed these, kind of rural areas, unique properties to come about where people couldn't have discovered them in any other way. And so it's really given people the opportunity to find locations and go travel. Now, COVID, I think, just poured an accelerant on it because of the work from home, the flexibility. And so as we're seeing less people go back to the office, more people work from home, uh, midterm stays, those are, you know, 30 to, um, you know, 180 day type of stays, those are now exploding as well. And I'm sure I think I've seen even you, you know, you're, you're spending 30 days here in this Airbnb, 30 days in this one. Um, I, I think those have all just continued to pour accelerant on this whole opportunity that is short-term rentals and Airbnbs, um, you know, across the country and across the world. 
What about from the uh, financing side? It seems a little bit easier than some of your traditional commercial real estate because they are the single family housing. Has that kind of changed at all in terms of will, will banks underwrite them as, you know, looking at expected revenue at all? Or how does that typically um, work? Yeah, so there's a couple lenders right now who are lending on whether it be actual revenue. So if you're buying an existing, you know, short-term rental or Airbnb, and then some are going off of projected revenues, such as like an AirDNA or a Rabu. And then what they're going to do is they're going to discount it, you know, whether that be 20 or 30%. And if it still pencils out, meaning projected revenue, say 80,000 a year, minus all expenses, you know, there's still some cash flow left, they'll write you the loan. So those are nice. They've got some pros and cons. Rates are typically a little higher, but there's less paperwork um, involved. They can move quick on those, um, but it is a good opportunity for somebody to grow and scale rapidly. I think the huge opportunity is whichever lender or bank really dives into this asset class and starts truly buying into projections and lending on it, and as well as existing rentals. There's just not that many that have turned over where people have owned them for three, four, five years, have an established history, and are willing to sell. Most of those people are keeping those or doing cash out refis. But as the as the properties start turning over as existing ones and there's actual you know, rent data attached, I think more lenders will get comfortable and that's where the asset class is going to absolutely explode. So it's definitely nice when you have a bunch of tailwinds kind of behind the growing market, you know, nicer financing, hopefully lined up unless I don't know, rates keep going nuts now, it's tough to predict. Um, yeah. Do you have a, it, you know, a classic playbook i'm assuming now when you look at a property you're like hey all right we're gonna go and and we're gonna repaint the inside we're gonna go put some you know take nicer photos or what does that look like on like a a quick high level of like the three to four things that you know you're gonna have to do on you know every single property or at least maybe the opportunities you look for that aren't done yet on a specific property yeah so opportunities are gonna be market specific and whether it's like a market like a scottsdale for example we know that statistically having a pool is going to give you, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30,000 more in revenue on an annual basis. So like we won't touch anything without a pool in, in that market. Some of these mountain towns, for example, a hot tub is kind of that same thing. So what will come in is we'll study a market and we'll start looking for what amenities are like bare minimum. And then what amenities can we add to drive us to be a top one, top five, top 10% property. And that's where we'll look at, hey, is it adding that hot tub? Is is it putting in a game room with a billiards, air hockey, you know, all the, you know, Miss Pac-Man games. Those are the kind of things we're going to go for. And then it's also like, how can we be unique? And so what's that unique factor we can add? I'm sure, you know, you guys have seen, I've tweeted out some of the stuff our design team does. They're absolutely incredible, whether it be um, murals, accent walls, neon lights, you know, are, are kind of the thing. And especially if people are staying for a while, they're going to take pictures. Having those Instagram walls is kind of the big thing now. It's like, where's your Instagrammable space? And um, if you can tie those in together, you can really drive bookings because now people start asking their friends, hey, where did you go? That place looked really awesome. And then boom, you've just pulled in another customer. And, and that's obviously revenue for the, for the property. We were talking about this in an episode that we did probably two or three weeks ago where Airbnb came out with a whole new launch, right? Basically, they they didn't rebrand, but they're trying to reposition their platform from less of an, I want to go to a spot that is over in Phoenix, Arizona, and more of a, uh, a way of saying, like, I want to go to a place 
you know, my wife plays piano. I want to go to a place that has a grand piano in the living room, or I want to go to like a glamping hut, or I want to go to a place that I know is reliably close to like surfing, like kind of basing it more off of those experiences. Kind of sounds like what you're saying is like, in order to go and actually compete in this space long-term, you're not trying to go and optimize and compete against necessarily like the hotels of the world, right? You're not going to beat the Marriott uh, with the cushy like suites and all of that kind of stuff. You're looking to go and like add like a freaking rock climbing wall in like a, a two-story apartment building in Denver or something like that. Yeah, and, and that's a great like point when it looks to like what you're doing. And, and sometimes it's crazy right now. You don't even have to compete on that. I mean, you guys are obviously buying storage against, you know, multi-million, multi-billion dollar competitors. Um, you know, we go into some of these like rural markets and we're competing with Uncle Bob who took his listing photos with his iPhone 5. And, you know, that's the competition bar. We go into some markets and they have green carpet and grandma's drapes from the 80s. And they're still pulling in 50, 60,000 in revenue. And that's like what's crazy because there's a huge supply and demand imbalance right now. So that's the other great opportunity uh, with short-term rentals is that current demand is far exceeding supply um, somewhere in the million dollar range or not million dollars, sorry, million property range. So, you know, we need about an, another million properties worth of inventory to hit the market in Airbnb and VRBO just to create equilibrium and balance on a supply and demand basis. So right now, if you own, there's a great imbalance where you can capitalize on that demand um, that's far out exceeding supply. I think right before we hit record, we we're just talking about how difficult it is to stay focused on one specific thing. Cause I know at the end of this podcast, probably going to talk with Carmen and be like, oh, should we be doing short-term rentals now? But staying focused. Um, in terms of you know, some of these supply and a lot of people getting into the short-term rental market, is there, you know, some sort of saturation fear to some extent of like, hey, we're underwriting these properties at these rates. If we keep going in this kind of trajectory, is there a fear potentially that, you know, I don't know, some of these markets get wildly oversaturated um, and kind of how do you view that from a, you know, maybe risk perspective on, you know, and when you guys underwrite some of these? Yeah, I mean, I think individual markets could eventually get saturated. Um, I do also think at the end of the day though, it's not like people are not gonna go to these places. And so, if you know demand drops 20%, arguably the bottom 20% is who's going to be hit the hardest and hit first. So if you can always try to maintain to be a top one, top five, top 10% property, um, you know whether it's on your one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, four bedroom, five bedroom, whatever you own in that market, um, I do think that's an opportunity. Um, personally speaking, um, I, I really only think there's about one market in the country that we could argue is truly saturated. And that would be right here in my back door in Orlando where I live. And that would be the Disney market. Um, it's one of the few outside of maybe Joshua Tree, you could argue where institutional capital is very prevalent. There's these multi-billion dollar corporations who are building entire neighborhoods with 30, 40, 50 houses, all short-term rental, all custom built. Um, that's also why a lot of people have asked me, you know, hey man, why don't you buy, you know, you live close by. I'm like, I don't want to go compete with people who have way bigger pocketbooks than me and can just outspend me. They, they probably can't out operate or outsmart me. But, you know, like I said, I like going and competing with, you know, Uncle Bob and his iPhone 4 pictures, and he hasn't changed the decor in over a decade in the house. Um, those are kind of the inefficiencies that are able to be capitalized on in several other markets. And um, it's also hard for an institution to set up shop in a lot of other markets like Disney. You know, that's a, a very unique opportunity, 80 million plus visitors. Um, 
don't see Disney closing anytime soon. You know, obviously COVID was very bizarre when it did close. Um, but outside of that, some of these other markets, it's going to be very tough for an institution to put up that kind of capital to make it worth their while. And that's kind of the unique opportunity that short-term rentals and Airbnbs present, um, you know, for, for us, you know, less institutional type investors. So break it down for people who are listening, because at this point, they, they hear you saying, you know, I got 24 properties across eight different states. I got nine more in contract, like under contract. And so like, you know, a couple, couple of years from now, I would love to, maybe even less than that, have you back on. And you're going to be having like hundreds of these short-term rentals. Like you're basically running hotels throughout the country, essentially is like what it is, right? That's, that's kind of what you're building here. Um, I'm, I'd, be, I'd be very curious to know like what out of those 24 deals was your best deal and feel free to share what you can and can't share, right? Maybe it's by the numbers, by the location, by the booking occupancy, whatever. What's been like your best deal, like absolute hands down slam, like grand slam. And then what's been a deal that you did that you thought was going to be really good that as the numbers have been working out, you're like, uh, actually we're not quite there. Like it's working, but we're not quite there. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I, I'll go to one of the positive ones, I think. One of our Scottsdale properties, again, um, it was actually an existing short-term rental, um, was producing about 140000 in revenue. And I kid you not, the design was B minus at best, like if I'm, you know, giving it a fair shake. And so our designers came in, we spent a little money, updated tile, updated bathrooms, uh, put wallpaper, accent walls, updated the exterior. Um, and, you know, even going in and spending 50, 60,000, you know, we're kind of trending towards driving an additional 30, 40,000 in top line revenue. So such a huge opportunity in ROI that we kind of walked into because a lot of people were only looking at that deal for what it was actually doing with that current operator. But we saw the value in that there was no upgrades to this property. Like, yes, it was still doing very well, all things being equal, 140K is still 140K, but we saw an opportunity that this property should be doing closer to 175, maybe even push 190. And so we kind of took our playbook, our design team knew what, what was necessary for the market, uh, what we needed to do, and we went out and executed. Um, you know, on the negative side, I think what we kind of ran into was we started buying up some cabins, um, you know, in, in kind of a rural market, um, you know, mountain town, and we kind of got too many two and three bedrooms. And we quickly realized that we're kind of starting to compete with our own self. And so that's where we started like pivoting and being like, hey, we want to maybe get some one bed couples getaways or some like five bedroom, like, you know, mansion, multiple family type stuff. So um, I think what we quickly realized is, yes, we start getting good deals on paper and the numbers were good. But now that we're operating them and they're all within a very tight knit range, they're all now competing with each other. Yes, design's different. Yes, they have different furniture and, you know, but we're still adding all, you know, they all have hot tubs. They all have all these great amenities that we know we need but now we're competing against ourselves. And so I think we um, quickly realized that, hey, we need to pivot here and offer a new variety uh, as far as what we're acquiring in that market. So that's kind of the balance. You know, we're in eight different markets today. Well, our goal will probably be about 12 to 15 by end of year. And so when we're gonna have anywhere from five to 10 in each of these markets that we're in, it's making sure it's a good blend of that five to 10. We have multiple bedroom counts, different locations, uh, whether it's Mountain View, Riverfront, wooded lots, you know, close to downtown, further away, 10 acre property to spread out on, smaller property, um, you know, whether it's a beachfront condo or, a, you know, huge mansion, is having that diversity in property type is a, is a good hedge for us just with our, in our own portfolio. Being so specific and kind of one, you know, niche asset class, 
at least what what we've noticed too is like we we can quickly now look at a storage deal and and I don't know five minutes decide if it's worth you know looking further into it's like all right you know square footage rent etc um i know for a while never really did any of the the long-term rental single family stuff i know the one percent rule there was really popular for a long time um I've, so a couple of your tweets i, I know you do have yeah, probably some yeah, answers you want to, to this you one. want to describe what the one percent rule is for um, people well so it's a um I, I believe it was if you get a single family house if it was a hundred thousand dollars and you could get a thousand dollars one percent of that every single month it was usually kind of a good deal that was a quick framework on good deal or not my understanding is now you can't really get that anywhere um but on the basis of quick you know back of the napkin math what you know are there any quick tricks on what you guys utilize to figure out hey this is a good short-term rental property or you know something someone else might be able to utilize if they're just kind of scrolling through listings etc yeah, so the, the the equivalent of a 1% rule for long-term rentals and short-term rental, um, you know, we try to target is the uh, the 20% rule. So um, whatever you pay in purchase price is that the gross revenue is 20% of that. So if you're buying something for half a million dollars, um, your goal would be to generate 100K in revenue. Now, with that basis, um, you're going to make a good profit, I can tell you. Now, things that are going to affect that are property taxes. In a place like Texas, where it's through the roof, that's going to cut into margin. If you have a place like Tennessee, where property taxes are like very tiny, it's obviously going to give you more yield. Um, it's also uh, insurance. So in a place like Florida, where I'm at, home insurance is like doubled almost the entire country, whereas you know other markets are you know more insurance-friendly um, you know, when it comes to that. So those obviously line items can affect you, but that's a good rule of thumb when it comes to what your expected yield is. I think too, you have to figure out what your threshold is and what you're willing to take. What's really unique about this asset class is there is a lifestyle component. Um, you know, last I checked, you guys haven't, you know, blocked off a steel box to go sleep in for the night. So there's not really a personal lifestyle use to it. And so, um, I think some investors are willing to take a slightly lesser yield in exchange for the lifestyle component, the usability of it. And, you know, that is a real thing. You can't say, I used to come in before the asset class and be like, man, I, I'll never rent my own properties. And, you know, here I am actually going to book one of my cabins in three weeks and, you know, just escape the Florida heat because it's going to be June and 105 here in Florida. So I need to, you know, get some better weather. Um, but that, that does exist. And so when you find your threshold and it's, so if you're able to take a, a smaller threshold and yield, you can start looking for an 18%, a 17 or even a 15% where, you know, the gross revenue is 15% of purchase price and you'll still be able to turn a profit. It might not be as healthy, um, obviously as a 20%, but, um, kind of in that 15% rule is really what we're, uh, what we're looking for at minimum. For what, for what it's worth, I think you'd be very surprised how many people do try to sleep in these steel boxes. So uh, <laughs> in the most unfortunate way possible. <laughs> um, yeah. I've got one thing here, basically. So like, you, you kind of know our stick, like very often, like I'm in New York or not, I'm actually subbing a buddy's place. So this is not an Airbnb or anything like that. Uh, but like last month was in an Airbnb all month there, Colorado in February, I'm going to be doing Costa Rica and then Portugal, do some Airbnbs there. So like, I'm pretty big into like more of this midterm rental element where it's like, I'll go in, I'll almost always try to negotiate off Airbnb. It doesn't always work out that way, but I'll at least like be like, Hey, here's this lease. If we each want to save a grand, uh, and like every now and then they go for it. Um, but when you think about yields in terms of like short-term rentals, would you say that like it almost goes up the 
from from if the scale is like on the left hand side there's long-term rentals of like at a year-long lease and then the middle is like the midterm rentals of like one to three months and then you've got the short-term rentals on that far right side of like three to five nights does the yield go up accordingly because it's theoretically it's more work doing doing the short-term rental game Yes, you have more turnover. Um, and so obviously you're going you're gonna to command that price when you're booking monthly. Um, like you said, you're, you're asking for a discount and, and people do discount their rate. Airbnb encourages you if somebody's requesting monthly. And even when you set up your account, it's like, hey, most other people offer a 12% discount for somebody to book monthly. Well, obviously playing my odds of just taking two, three, four, five night bookings for you know getaways, I'm going to always make more money. It's the same thing. I'm sure if somebody guys approached you guys to, uh, you know, sign a long-term lease, you know, in storage, you know, you might actually explore that, Hey, we'll give you a discount, especially if you are going to prepay, you know, which is what's happening. They're prepaying for the whole 30 days or whole 60 days with their short-term rental vacation or, or stay that they're doing. So um, I do think that, you know, midterm offers definitely some more yield compared to um, long-term rentals, but not quite, uh, what short-term rentals are going to be. I think the whole like traveling nurses is another great, you know, example that has kind of been around for a while, but is now becoming more and more popular. And that's a great midterm stay. And, you know, same thing, you're going to make more than if you had just uh, rented to a 12 month lease tenant, but at the same time, it's not the same as, you know, just running your place two, three, four nights on bookings. Running what's essentially kind of a, as Connor mentioned, a hotel with rooms scattered around the country. What do you guys project out typically for kind of margins and expenses and like what does that net um, percentage actually look like um, and and do you think that's going to maintain itself yeah so kind of like a general rule of thumb when you look at you know whether it be a retail operator of a short-term rental assuming we have you know standard debt terms you know a 20 percent down investment loan and and you know all the other expenses that come with it utilities shampoo toilet paper paper towels all the normal necessary stuff What's typically happening is what you're carrying in, as far as cash flow to the bottom line is anywhere from 35 to 50%. So if your place is grossing 100 grand, you should expect after all expenses, after debt service, to have somewhere between 35 and 50 grand in free cash flow. Now, the reason there's a spread there is a couple of things. Like I said, property taxes. In a place like Texas, it runs you know two two and a half percent of purchase price. You know that could be you know twelve fifteen thousand dollars on a half million dollar property, whereas that same half million dollar property in Tennessee might have eighteen hundred dollars in annual taxes. So that is a hard expense that you know you you can't take with you. So um, you know things like that affect it. Uh, your insurance monthly payment. Um, also, too, is just how, how good you are at running your operation. If you're a little sloppy, you're a retail guy, you, you don't quite have your efficiencies lined up, you might waste some expenses that somebody like us, who's a very clean, lean operator, might not take into account. But that's kind of the general range you're going to find with people operating their Airbnbs and how much free cash flow they're taking to the bottom line versus their gross revenue. Do you know off the top of your head what that looks like if you were to buy it kind of without debt, like just a general $100 in you know, rent per night, what that comes down to on a you know, after cleaning expenses, I'm assuming. And the big yeah, I haven't, haven't actually run the hard numbers on that to see, um, obviously we're, we're mostly utilizing, you know, um, debt and loans, you know, for our properties using responsible leverage, but um, I'm sure there's a quick, easy napkin math way, uh, plug it into the pro forma to see kind of what that roughly looks like uh, from a, from an operating expense standpoint. When you, when you're like working with all these guys, cause so how big is the team that you're working with Eric? The team is 16 deep right now. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. And, and how does that so, spread between, I guess, management and where do those people fall? 
So all the different departments. Um, so, you know, you're going to have uh, founders at the top. Um, you're going to have acquisitions. We have project managers. So the people who actually oversee all the renovations across the country. So like I said, we actually have like six or seven renovations going on right now in properties we've already closed on, but we're putting in new tile, new granite countertops, installing a fire pit, all that. So somebody has to manage all those contractors across the country. Our team's fully remote. Um, you know, I'm the only one in Florida on the team, you, you know, as far as that's concerned. Um, then we have our designers. So they're obviously overseeing the design of every house. And then we have the property management team. So what's kind of nice is everything goes, uh, you know, across the spectrum where the property gets acquired, acquisitions has it, and then boom, it moves over to project management. And then project management takes it, goes to design after design, it goes to property management. And then from there, they're overseeing it. And then we have a revenue management team. So a um, couple people are looking at the daily occupancy, the, the ADR, the average daily rate, how our revenue looks, how it's trending. Is it going down? Is it going up? Do we need to raise prices because we're almost too occupied? Or do we need to lower prices because we're not occupied enough compared to the market? So those are all the different departments um, that we have and people on the team and everybody kind of fills in their role that they're good at. In terms of the actual day-to-day, -day, like once a property stabilized, you've done all the, the maintenance repairs and, you know, you put in the pool or, or the hot tub, the biggest work there is I'm assuming just the cleaning crew to kind of go in and make sure things tidied up. How do you manage the day-to-day -day operations being, you know, you guys are fully remote. Like I've, I think I've hit three different Airbnbs as kind of mentioned, we Stay in a lot of them, but I've still, I've hit three different Airbnbs where I'd shown up and it wasn't clean. Like, and they weren't cheap spots either. Just there's trash everywhere. And I call the guy and he's like, oh, sorry. Like, I guess my cleaner didn't show up. How do you, how do you manage that? Yeah. I, I mean, we want to put systems in place to prevent something like that from happening. And, you know, big thing uh, is we love putting ring cameras on the outside um, Airbnb won't let you to ever put a camera on the inside. That's obviously very illegal, but a camera on the outside facing the driveway. Yes, for us, there's a little hedge that we can see is, you know, 30 cars in the driveway and somebody's throwing a rager, you know, hey, you can break that up. But more importantly, it's there to check on the cleaner. And so you get the motion notifications as, you know, somebody checks out at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. is, you know, is it noon and no cleaner showed up yet? You might need to get on the phone with the owner of the cleaning company. So for us, we'll go in and get contracts and partnerships with, you know, uh, local people that we trust um, that are in the space, um, you know, kind of a professional cleaning company. Um, it's kind of that delicate balance. You don't want to find somebody who's too big where, you know, you could get forgotten, but the one-off um, could get tough because what if they get sick or they're out of town or they're on vacation so we love those like mid-sized cleaning teams and that's what we like partnering where they have anywhere from five to ten uh, you know kind of subcontractors or workers underneath you know the owner of the cleaning company that's kind of that perfect mix for us to grow within and so we're just constantly building out that rolodex of partners within every city we go into the plumber the electrician the contractor the handyman um, you know, the cleaning company, you're, you're building out that Rolodex for every city you go to. And that's your go-to for who you're going to utilize if something goes wrong. Now, I think most of the people who are going to be listening to this are a little bit like on the younger side. And so we've had people who are in the real estate space before kind of like talk their game. And like, I think the one that probably resonates a lot is like house hacking, because you can do that for pretty little to no money down when it comes time for the actual Airbnb stuff. Like, like people can certainly go and buy a rental property and, and do all of that. But are there other opportunities to make money in that space that just from being in the space long enough, you've kind of realized like, wow, if this market continues to grow, this area would be a fantastic market to jump in on as well. 
like I know I think probably the easiest example that comes to mind is probably cleaning. Uh, like they're going to need more cleaners for these short-term rentals and like turning over stays. But are there things where it's like, you know, maybe, hey, we'll go and provide, we'll provide off-site design services or, you know, I'm sure that's probably already a thing, but like something like that. There is a ton of opportunity in the service industry, um, small business industry around short-term rentals that you can go make probably more money than actually operating the real estate without the risk. And, you know, those things can include anything from like lawn maintenance. So we've already had to multiple times, you know, fire people who just wouldn't show up and they, you know, wouldn't cut the grass when they say, or we tell them, hey, you need to come on Tuesday because that's when a guest isn't there. They show up on Thursday and a guest is like, hey, the lawn cleaning guy or the, you know, the lawn care guys here. And it's like, dude, you're supposed to come on Tuesday, not Thursday. And so if you can hitch your wagon to, you know, investors who own multiple properties in a particular area, or the better play would be a property management company. If you can show you're trustworthy, you answer the phone, you're reliable, you're professional, and you do your job, they will turn around and give you every contract they have. You'll cut the grass at every single house they have because they know you can show up. If you're in a market with a pool and you own a pool cleaning company, same thing. Um, if you run a pest control service, if you want to start a cleaning company, I know on Twitter, that's, that's a really big thing right now is people starting these remote cleaning companies. I would 100% hitch my wagon to, you know, some investors or there show, hey, man, I'm going to answer the phone. Our people are going to be on time. They're going to be professional. We're going to do our job correctly. And you can absolutely pick up so many accounts. And, you know, for us, we, we've definitely looked at it. I kind of had one of those entrepreneur ideas we talked about uh, before getting really into this was kind of being a one-stop shop, um, you know, home service company for Airbnbs. And we would do um, cleaning, we would do grass cutting. And if it had a pool, we would do pool cleaning as well. Pest control does come with certifications and licenses that does make it a tough barrier to entry. But if you kind of rounded out that, that crew for the cleaning, for the lawn care, for the pool cleaning, you'd be the one-stop shop. And, and I can tell you from an investor standpoint, I don't want to have to call three different people and maintain three different relationships. It's so much easier for me to be like, hey, let me call you. And then you cut the grass on Mondays, you clean the pool on Thursdays, and you know you clean at every checkout. Huge opportunity available with all of those different aspects that are in and around short-term rentals. Do you think there's any opportunity in the actual third-party management side, or does that just become similar to you know regular you know property management of a, apartment buildings, which I know can be really low margin, really kind of intensive from an operational side, and no one really enjoys doing it. Is there an opportunity there at all? Or is it more kind of you think in the realm of managing the contractors rather than just the bookings and, and stuff like that? No, there is definitely opportunity. It's, uh, it's like you said, the margins can get tight and it can be very intensive. You're being on call all the time. So it's not something a lot of people want to sign up for, but the right person, you could turn around and manage, you know, five, 10, maybe 12 Airbnbs yourself. Um, you're not overexerting. You have to always be on call technically, and you can make a really healthy living. So there is that opportunity. You can also go in and co-host properties for people where, you know, they'll mark you as a co-host and then you're doing all the guest communications for them. You're handling everything. And in exchange, you get a piece of the revenue. So, you know, again, there's a kind of low barrier to entry. The other one that's really big right now is, you know, rental arbitrage. And, you know, that's in essence where you would approach a landlord and you would actually sign a, a long-term lease with them. And so let's just say that long-term lease is 2000 a month. 
your idea is to go out, rent that apartment, rent that condo, rent that single family home, um, generate $4,000 a month in Airbnb money minus the 2000 of, you know, rent that you owe and you take home two grand for yourself. Because my, my thought would be that there's, you know, plenty of people always want to get into real estate. They want to get into rentals. They want to get into, you know, kind of whatever real estate field that they want to, but the biggest issues frequently, Hey, I don't really have any money. Right. But I want to get involved. And so my thought would be, you know, potentially that's probably a good avenue from, you know, let me start managing someone else's Airbnb. You get the experience, you're making the money. Um, you know, you're managing 12 of them. Now you go buy your own. You're probably pretty good at it. Um, Absolutely. So it seems like Absolutely. a decent, decent place to start. I am, I'm very intrigued on the design aspect. You keep bringing up the design team and we, yeah, our, our buddy that's been doing these two shows, like, he's like, oh, this is what the design render is going to look like. What does that really entail? And have you considered that as like a third party service as well? Because I feel like my concern, if I went and bought a house right now as an Airbnb, I would do such a poor job of designing it to, I don't know, like I'd paint the colors, everything would be wrong. Um, is that a reasonable, you know, service to provide other people? And, and what does your actual kind of in-house design process look like? So I'll speak to both of those. So our in-house team obviously has experience. They also own their own Airbnbs. So that's obviously great to have experienced professionals. That's why we brought them in. And, you know, for us, kind of the high level thesis with design is every area is going to be different. So what you need to do is you need to study what are those top performing properties? What do they look like? What are the commonalities? What are the themes? Um, you know, what style? Is it industrial? Is it Southwestern? Is it modern? Is it contemporary? Is it beachy? Um, you know, whatever that might be. And then you turn around and just execute within that. Now, as far as how to execute, I couldn't tell you, man, that is definitely not my department. That's why I bring in people better. I think there is a huge opportunity. We talked about the home services side. If you are a designer and you can understand the Airbnb space, um, a lot of studying what are top performing properties, what are commonalities, what are things you could do a per project based job and probably do very well. Um, you know, even charging anywhere from, you know, 1500 to 5000 per project, you really only just need to find, you know, three to six, uh, you know, investors a month who need help designing their properties. And if these are investors who are going to scale up, I can tell you, they're going to keep coming back to you. Now you start getting repeat clients. And that's not a bad way to have a remote job where all you're doing is kind of leading the design, overseeing it, helping pick the furniture. The clients are buying the furniture in the end of the day. You're just kind of pointing in the right direction for this is what you should do. This is where you should put. This is, this is what amenities you need. This is what couch you should buy. Um, huge opportunity there. Um, I think because this is such a new asset class, there's not a lot of established players in a lot of these segments where um, everybody knows, oh, well, this person is the best Airbnb design company in the world. And you can get regional with it. You can obviously go national with it. And it's a job you can do remote. And I think that's another huge opportunity that somebody with design experience, a design eye, could go in and make a healthy six-figure uh, income with relatively not a lot of clients behind them. I think it would also give you the opportunity to do like probably a lot of upsells too, potentially after like, Hey, I just designed your Airbnb. What about, you know, here's my recommendations for software. Maybe you do turn it into, you know, short-term management um, as well, right? There's kind of a lot of different paths you can go there on the, on the technology side, you said a lot of the, the founders and a big portion of the team kind of comes from a tech background. What does that actually look like? Are you guys just kind of combining best in service software that's already out there are you making kind of custom integrations or how automated you know are you right now and, and 
is there a lot of opportunity to kind of keep, um, you know, extending that out there? Yeah, we've built our own software that kind of works for us, um, mainly on the acquisition side, mainly on the funnel side and, and keeping deal flow happening. So for us, it's all about what hits the market, what are trends, um, different emerging markets for us to pull in and recognize based on rental revenue. Does revenue start spiking in a particular city? Okay, well, why is it spiking? How can we analyze this? And now we know what to buy. You know, that's how we've gone in and dissected the data to look at. And we can enter a market, say like Scottsdale, and the data tells us, don't buy anything that's not at least four or five bedrooms or bigger with a swimming pool. And so we've just been able to scrape that data. Not to say those other ones can't make money, but when you're playing your odds and you're playing the statistics, that's what the data is going to tell you you should go after. So now we can hone in our search and, you know, it might be the best three, two you've ever seen, but it just doesn't fit our criteria. We're not going to play that odds. And that person still might make money, but for us, we now know. And so as we hone in on these different markets, we know exactly what to buy, you know, here in this market, there's a shortage of, you know, couples getaway cabins or stays or condos. And so now we want to go after and exploit and get as many one bedrooms as we can and we look at the gap in the marketplace and we're like, man, you know, the, the motel six down the road is charging 179 a night. And it's like, holy crap. If we just had a really nice design, one bedroom, we could probably charge 249 a night and absolutely crush it. That's really smart. I, I bet you can probably come out. We kind of talked about this before, but like come out with some really cool content or courses of like specifically like, like the fact that you just rattled off eight different design styles, like I, my brain doesn't work like that. The fact that you can like kind of think about different structures and like, like in terms of like, okay, we can buy a three, two in this market, but we can't go and buy like what, whatever else kind of structure in another market. I think it's a really cool way of thinking about it and, and knowing what you should be optimizing for. Um, Geo kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but like, I think one thing that you've been hearing a lot of, I'm sure in the past 30 days is like, are we going to a recession? And I think it's just one of those things that like, People have also been saying this stuff since 2017. So I think when I see a lot of these headlines, I don't get super nervous, but like inevitably I would get, if I, if I was to bet, I would guess that we would go into a recession in the next 10 years, like super far time horizon, right? Like it's, it's 10 probably, years. <laughs> yeah. Like, like it's, it's going to happen. Like it's like, you can't just like say, I'm going to live the rest of my life and there's not going to be one. And so like, I think one of the things to think about is right. you're not, it sounds like you're not leveraging them up like crazy from a debt standpoint, but the first thing when times get tough, it gets cut are like the luxury spending and, and like the vacations and all of that kind of stuff. Do you think that there would ever be a world where if bookings drop enough, you would turn to some of your properties and say, all right, we're just going to go and convert these over to like 12 month rentals. So for us personally, no, um, for other investors that that is a good, you know, hedge that some have done some investors only buy short-term rentals that will still make sense as a long-term rental if they have to weather a storm. We unfortunately can't buy that. It's going to, you know, very niche down what you can buy being very particular. We put in hedges different ways. Obviously we talked about is not over leveraging yourself. So, you know, having some good equity um, in these properties. The other thing is how much you keep in a reserve. So do you keep six months, nine months, 12 months in debt service or reserve? Um, those would be responsible things. So you could weather a potential downstorm. It's never going to go to zero. So I think a lot of people look at that just because you have a six month reserve, that would mean zero bookings. That doesn't mean, hey, we normally rent for 300 a night and now I'm down to 200 a night. You're still going to be able to, quote unquote, probably have over a year run rate to survive a downturn, even just with a six month reserve, because your place will still book. And kind of how we feel is people with money, wealthy people are still going to travel, even if there's a recession. Now, 
like we said, the bottom 10%, the bottom 20%, the bottom 30%, you know, might not travel anymore. And that's going to in turn affect the bottom 10, 20, 30%. So we also look at too, is what kind of markets you're going into. And that can be a hedge that we look at. When we look at our portfolio, we're very bullish on drivable destinations from metropolitans, meaning like, are we within a, a one to three hour drive of a major metropolitan? So you look at a market like say Blue Ridge, Georgia, which is an hour and a half from Atlanta, two hours from Chattanooga. If you have looked at plane flights recently and you know, me and my wife have been looking to you know, maybe go somewhere, I mean, stuff's gone up 20, 30, 40, 50%. And, you know, is that family of four going to drop $2,000 on plane tickets plus a rental car, or are they going to go drive two hours and stay in a cabin in the mountains? And so that's how I look at it, is people's vacations might change. I saw somebody tweeted out how they went to, uh, their family would go to Europe every summer and they never paid four figures on a plane ticket, you know, on an individual person basis. And now all of a sudden they're paying 12 to 1500 per ticket for this year's trip. And so I think the whole fact of sticker shock when people look to book is why we're very bullish on the near term about drivable destinations. High gas prices do suck. That is going to deter people. But if you stay within that, like I said, two to three hour range of these huge drivable destinations, the Shenandoah Valley being a two hour drive from DC, whether it be the Pocono Mountains being a two hour drive from Philly, whether it being the Catskills being an hour and a half drive from New York City. Those are kind of like places that, you know, we're bullish on because at the end of the day, people in those cities are going to get away. They're tired of looking at concrete every day and staying in their apartment or their high rise. They do want to get outside. And um, even if there is a recession, they're still going to book. Um, it just might be, you know, less occupancy or less um, ADR. In terms of other ways, so it seems like you guys also generate cash, not just from the revenue either of, of the bookings you guys are also packaging up short-term rentals that you find or how does how does it work i think i've, I've come across a couple different um sections of you know your website and, and, and different tweets are you guys getting these under contract buying them you know making it a good rental and then selling them or what does that actually look like why are you doing it and then how does that kind of fit into this whole whole equation yeah, so we wanted to actually prove a thesis is, will somebody buy a short-term rental based on yield, not appraised value? As I'm sure you guys are aware with storage, multifamily, every other real estate asset class trades on yield. It doesn't trade on appraised value, but short-term rentals, it's kind of this niche that you know we're also able to exploit is we're buying something based on appraised value. And that appraised value is just attached, attached to what the house next door is worth. It's not attached to, hey, this thing will generate 150000 a year in revenue. That has nothing to do with the price of that house. And so we're kind of in this unique stage where people are doing so. We wanted to see is could we buy a house, renovate it, remodel it, design it, furnish it, and start renting it out, have some cash flows and, and yield to it? And can we sell based on yield, not based on appraised value? And we've actually already uh, exited five properties that way. So we kind of proved the point on a, on a retail basis. Now we got, we got some pushback. There was a lot of people who were like, man, you're crazy. I'm not going to pay more than the appraised value. And like, you know, fine. Like a lot of these people I think are delusional and they don't quite understand how this will eventually turn into every other real estate asset class where it will trade based on the yield that the property is going. But right now there's an opportunity to buy based on appraised value, which has absolutely nothing to do with its rental revenue potential. And so we're kind of exploiting that. So we, um, wanted to do a personal experiment. We proved it out. It worked. And so 
What that does for us is as we build this portfolio, we also know that as a hedge at any point, we can actually um, take some chips off the table and sell any of our short-term rentals as a turnkey STR. So it's actually a service we offer, you know, around our investment portfolio, which is our core thesis is, hey, if you'd like to buy your own short-term rental, you don't want to do all the legwork of having to find it, acquire it, get the rate renderings and the remodel and the furniture is, hey, you can just buy one of ours. It's turnkey ready to go and it's got bookings attached to it. So it's a service we've recently started offering for investors who um, really don't want to mess with all the nitty gritty um, and they just want everything handed right to them. And so we'll, we'll do it for everybody. I wonder if you could combine that with the property management part. Like maybe you got, you got the guy that has the money, knows he wants to get in the short-term rental, has a full-time job and doesn't want to manage it. It's like, hey, here's your you know investment in the box and we'll manage it for the next, you know, what is the revenue? Is that just the so GPLP model? We, the ones we included in the price we offered, we included 12 months of property management with that. So you're- Would you're you keep to- going- further on if they wanted. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. If they want to hire us, absolutely. We figured, you know, you don't want to commit somebody to three years that nobody's going to sign up to be like, oh, hey, you know, we're, we're locked in to manage your property for three years. Yes. We're making money after the sale. And that's nice. So we just say, hey, 12 months is included after 12 months. If they want to manage it themselves, they feel confident. Sure. Go for it. If they want to hire us, statistically, they probably will. Sure. If they want to fire us and hire a different company, great. It's their property. You know, it's titled and deeded in their name and they can do whatever they want with it. But we just know statistically, if we do our job and we're driving revenue for them, they're probably going to let us continue to manage it for perpetuity. I kind of, it seems like a really cool and innovative model. And I think Connor, to your point though, it's no, I think it's different than kind of the GP and LP model because you still, like you still own the house, right? You make the decision on, on when to sell. And, you know, if you want to book it, Right. This weekend for yourself. Theoretically, it would be the same if Taylor still retained some form of equity in all of that. He only sold like 80% of it or something like that. Um, yeah, I kind of love that model. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see where you guys go. I can almost like imagine like a you know website you go through, you pick your city, you get, it, you get to see all the different houses, what they yield. You just buy it online. You guys manage it. Um, well, I'm curious what you guys think. We floated this idea out where, so same thing, an investor wants to get in short-term rentals. They've got some capital, but they're not necessarily having the full knowledge. We've got the full knowledge. We actually have the operations is, hey, um, you put up the capital for the down payment and everything. We'll oversee all the remodel renovations. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of manage that, you know, there. And we'll manage the property itself. Are you, finding, we'll are you finding the deal as well? We'll find the deal as well. We'll put a pro forma attachment and then we'll manage it. And then we'll split the cash 50, 50. So you put up the, you put up the initial capital for the down payment to acquire it. Obviously, you know, you're going to pay for the, the furniture, you know, just at whatever the retail cost is, but then we're going to manage it. We'll, we'll know exactly what to buy, you know, how to design it, what amenities are needed and we'll manage it to drive the most revenue be, and we're incentivized because we get half the cash flow. So as an investor, it's de-risked in that from the operations standpoint, you have a professional organization coming in. Obviously, you know, for us, we're de-risked in that we're not having to put up all that capital up front on the down payment side, but we're able to capitalize on we do a good job and go there. So I'm curious if you think there's a marketplace for people to be willing to put up the down payment money and then let us do all the professional work and the ops and then split the capital, you know, 50, 50 at the end. I think there's probably like a market, but if I had to guess, you just have to go and look at it from a numbers basis, right? If they put up a hundred thousand dollars with the expectation that they're getting an 8% yield on that capital, and now they're actually getting a 4% yield because you guys are splitting it, but they don't have to ever think about it. Like that's, that's attractive to maybe some people, but certainly not everyone. And so I think you just have to think about like, 
is the number actually 50 50 or is it more like 70 30 80 20 whatever that number actually looks like um because from I mean, that's, you, you can always get you get pretty advanced too and go like do some sort of waterfall of like guaranteed you know the first x percentage of yield goes to you and then we split something after it but i think as long as the margin's there I, I love the whole concept of like these investments in a box and you walk people through it. I think even if you lined up potential preferred vendors and it was like pre-qualified, we're like, Hey, you know, you'll probably need to put down, you know, 40 to 50 grand. These are three banks that, that have given us term sheets on this property. If your credit comes back, you know, this is probably what you'll expect to pay. This is how everything handles out. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the concept. Well, we've taken the turnkey model and we've actually reverse engineered it. So people actually now um, we offer it where you'll pay us a service fee and then we'll go out, find your property, renovate it, design it, furnish it and manage it for you. So the only difference being the turnkey model is we've already done that work ourselves and then we're handing you a ready to go one tomorrow. We reverse engineered it where you can prepay, you pay us a service fee, put a deposit down, you give us your, your buying criteria. Hey, this is what I want in this geographic location at this price point. We'll go find it, we'll renovate it, we'll design it, we'll furnish it, and we'll manage it for you. So boom, it's a turnkey Airbnb, here you go. So it's the same thing, but it's just reverse engineered in that instead of us doing all of that and then it's ready to go and we sell it to you, we just say, okay, hey, pay us a service fee up front. So that way it's worth it for us to spend all the resources and time doing all this. But boom, we'll turn around, get you your own short-term rental. So yeah, that's our, uh, we call it STR in a box. And that's the program we have available for investors who uh, want somebody to do everything end to end for them. And they don't want to do any work and they want to have their own short-term rental is they just pay us and we'll take care of everything for them end to end. I'm excited to see where you guys are in a couple of years because I feel like you're like you kind of testing out a bunch of these different things. If I'd imagine one or two of these type of unique um, or creative kind of aspects will probably blow up. Um, it'd be really interesting. I am intrigued though now on, you know, I think we keep flipping back and forth on the upsides and downsides, um, right? You mentioned that now you're, you know, people are going to start underwriting these as just whatever yield is that they can get. Right. The house down the street for me probably is going to make money as an Airbnb because they're buying it on the appraised value, plenty of markets. So to your point, the you could sell the short term rental in the box for more than the house down the road because of the money it's generating. But now you get all these headlines of, you know, BlackRock buying up small town America and, and investors coming in and, and ruin it, ruining, you know, home buying opportunities which then, you know, goes down to regulatory risk on short term rentals. How do you view that from a, you know, is, is there a risk that the town you're in just says you can't, you can't do this? So there's definitely risk and, and we look at risk in a couple of different factors. So we are only going into places that have already taken a stance on short-term rentals. So just because you're allowed to do short-term rentals doesn't mean it's legal. And what I mean by that is it's a city that has not made a decision. Now there's not a lot left. Most have made a decision within the past 24 months whether that's to outright ban them, whether that's to require this formal permit process, whether it's a seven night minimum, whether it's a 30 night minimum, they've taken a stance in one way, shape or form. So number one, we will not go into any municipality that has not taken a stance. Now let's take a place like Asheville, North Carolina. So they took a stance in that STRs are banned in city limits. So in the city of Asheville, city limits, short-term rentals are banned. They did that about five or six years ago. 
What's really nice is they grandfathered in everybody. So those people who had STRs in downtown and have not sold are absolutely killing it because you can't, you can't buy that literally. Um, but the difference being now is you can invest in the suburbs. So all those surrounding cities, whether that be, you know, Fairview, Weaverville, Arden, Candler, you know, all those other places, as long as it's not in an HOA that has taken a stance against it, because again, any HOA can, you know, decide the majority of the community says we don't want them or the majority of the community says, you know, hey, we want to have short-term rentals. That's the kind of place we're going to look at. Yes, we're writing offers in Asheville. You know, I was just giving you a real example. And so that's what we look for is those suburbs where it is allowed. We're not going to go into a place that hasn't taken a stance. It's too much regulatory risk. Um, when you do look at like a Phoenix or a Scottsdale, you know, the governor of Arizona comes in and says, hey, municipalities can't ban STRs. Now, obviously, again, local HOAs can, so you still need to check for those. But you do are you are hedged in that way. The second form of protection would be: Are they collecting lodging taxes? So that's where we go into some of these places like you know Blue Ridge, Gatlinburg, etc. Don't see them ever getting rid of the the five dollar per night lodging tax they have on there because that lodging tax the local government's collecting two, three, four million dollars a year in lodging taxes. It's one of their biggest revenue line items in these small you know vacation towns. So we just have to look at it logically and be like, man, they're collecting all this money. Would they ever want the gravy train to stop? And, and the answer is no, they're never going to outlaw them. They might make some changes and the permit rules and the hoops you have to jump through. And that's fine. Like that's like anything else as well, but they're never going to get rid of them. That money's too good. And, and I think we can all agree that if the government gets their hands on $4 million a year and doesn't have to do anything for it, they're not going to give it up. Like as soon as, as soon as they start bringing in the tax dollars, they, uh, they quickly, yeah, they, 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 they quickly, they figure out ways on how to, how to bring in more. They definitely don't reverse that decision. Um, I want to touch on, I feel like we, we haven't really talked about the acquisition side at all. And, you know, if you talk to most any other real estate person on the acquisition side, it's all about off markets, direct to seller. You're trying to find, you know, something that's kind of mispriced. You're typically not on the MLS buying, you know, a commercially listed, whatever property, because you guys are underwriting these differently. Um, you know, what are those different channels look like? And then how as someone that might have, you know, not gotten into this market at all? How could I start looking um, and getting myself in front of deals? Is that MLS? Is it brokers? Is it, you know, do I have to cold call? Am I sending mailers? What does that look like? Yeah, so as crazy as it is, because of the misalignment where we're buying on appraised value, we've bought 90% of the portfolio um, just off Zillow, Redfin, MLS. Um, only about 10% have come from off market, whether that be agents with pocket listings. Um, people know we're a buyer. So, you know, they don't want to mess around with something falling out of contract. They know that, hey, short of there being a crack in the foundation of the roof caving in and you're not going to give us a roof credit, we're going to get to the closing table. So I think when you establish yourself as a, you know, short terminal buyer, um, that's how we've started to get some of those. Again, it's only been, you know, four or five total listings, you know, at the recording of this year. But for us, it's that opportunity to go in and buy something that is priced on the MLS as appraised value understand its actual revenue value from a short-term rental perspective, buy it, renovate it, execute it. So for us, that's how we've been finding most of our deals. We have great agent relationships across the country in the markets we want. If they hear that, hey, this is coming up on market at the end of the week, you guys should look at it. We're happy to write a uh, very aggressive pre-list offer. And we've won a couple that way as well, where um, we run our numbers. We know that, hey, we can offer you know 50K above list. 
tell the seller, hey, you don't have to go to market. You don't have to do any open houses. We keep the financing pretty clean. There's not a lot of contingencies. Boom. And we go in and, and scoop up a deal that way. But um, I think the common investor can certainly find a short-term rental right off MLS, right off Zillow, and you know, still turn a really great profit because that's what we're doing as well. Yeah, that's smart. And I feel like that's... Uh... Gio and I were actually just reading the same book called Risk Game. I think I'm going to mention it on the podcast before, but the whole concept there is the guy went in and basically bought these apartment buildings, co-opted them out, and he could pay more for the apartment buildings. And, you know, it didn't matter because he wasn't underwriting them as apartment buildings. Same way with you. You're not underwriting these as a single family residential or buying based on appraised value. You're buying based on how much money you can get. So you're, you're like, you're looking at it through a different lens, which is pretty cool. No, certainly. And I think um, there's a couple of people we've looked at it as well as, these duplexes, triplexes, or quadplexes, maybe by the beach in a beach town is, you know, somebody might look at it as a long-term and be like, man, I can only collect, you know, 2000 a door. And we're like, man, this does 4,000 a door on Airbnb and we're okay paying 600 where the other guy's only paying five and a quarter. And so for us, it's still pencils buying it at 600, but you know, if we were using it as a long-term rental, it, it wouldn't pencil. And totally. so those kind of those mispriced opportunities that you could find within the marketplace. That's smart. Taylor, I think people are going to really want to check this out. And also maybe even like, who knows, you might get some opportunities out of this one as well, especially if people want to go and maybe take you up on that Airbnb in a box service. Uh, if they do want to go and hit you up afterwards or see the stuff that you're working on, all the properties you're acquiring, where can they go and check y'all out? So you can check out our website. It's superhostlabs.com. Um, I hang out over on Twitter at Mr. Jones STRs. Um, feel free to email me as well. It's on the website, um, Taylor at superhostlabs.com. Always try to engage, give back. And Twitter has been great just being active and the amount of people we've been able to meet. So really, uh, it's really great to help other people out. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show today, Taylor. I really appreciate the time, man. Absolutely, guys. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes.